Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. It took a lot of years for my heart to kind of settle into that place to be unimpressed with celebrity and to uh, be very impressed with the image of God. And the image of God is in everyone and celebrity is reserved for a few. But celebrity also has unique burdens of its own, a unique loneliness to it, a unique uh, suspicion uh, about whether or not anybody really cares about you just for you. You know, this is why up to this point, I've never asked a rich person for money uh, in the church. Hey, everybody. My guest today is Scott Sauls from Nashville, Tennessee. Scott is a senior pastor of Christ Press Church in Nashville. And prior to moving to Nashville, Scott worked under Tim Keller in New York City at Redeemer Church. You may ask, what prompted me to ask a pastor for the first time on this podcast? I wanted to have Scott on the podcast because I heard that when he moved from New York to Nashville, Christ Press had many people leave. As Scott described it, this was a rebuilding effort. Several years in, Christ Press has grown and planted multiple campuses around the city of Nashville. In addition to this, I found Scott's leadership style unique since Christ Presbyterian gives away over 40% of their income each year. This was a fun conversation where we cover what a rebuilding effort looks like and what to expect, his own struggle with approval, and what he has learned to lead by principles and not by politics. While leading a large church teaches you your limitations, why the needs are overwhelming, and what this has taught him about control. What he's learning about planning campuses in the fifth most diverse city in the United States and how to give people what they need. About building an organization bigger than yourself, what he is doing to make succession a smooth process, and more. Scott's also the author of five books, and you can find those at scottsauls.com backslash books. And you can also find more about Scott at scottsauls.com. And this information is also in the show notes. Please enjoy this week's episode with Scott Sauls. Scott, great to see you. Good to be with you, Sam. I'm just curious from the start, I know what Christianity teaches and I don't have a lot of experience in other faiths or religions, but if you take kind of the Christian teaching out of it, curious about you personally, have you always been a fan of the underdog and have you always been a fan or have you always had a heart for maybe the person that is overlooked or kind of uh, left out in, in some 
form or fashion. And the reason I ask that, I watch your stuff pretty frequently and I've seen the things that you do with getting people with disabilities or even the elderly and making a special effort to include these people in your work and with your ministry. And I'm just curious kind of where that started for you. Um, that's a really good question. I think, you know, certainly my, my radar for those, I guess, that you describe as the underdog has been amplified since becoming a Christian, you know, approximately 30 something years ago. Uh, seems like a long time ago. Uh, but yeah, I do have some memories in childhood elementary school, uh, high school of moments where I had a, an unusual, I guess, sensitivity to those who were maybe overlooked or mistreated or uh, felt invisible. And uh, so it was a, it was a bit of a, it was on my radar from, from a very young age. And, you know, part of that may have to do with, you know, having been the bullied kid and the made fun of kid during certain seasons, younger in childhood. But, you know, when I met Christ, it just became a lot more real and a lot more central to life and ministry and those sorts of things. So you're saying there's a, there was something maybe early on with you, but then there was a specific experience that, that you're thinking of that you noticed it early on, but then as a result of that, and then as you've continued to grow, grow older and grow up, you've just, it's been kind of a core part of who you are and the type of people that you want to include in your work and not just certain people specifically? I think so. I mean, it, it, you know, that, those aspects of what we do in life and ministry with, you know, as you mentioned, people with disabilities and special needs or, you know, the elderly or widows or kids from, you know, homes where the parents aren't together. There's just kind of a natural soft spot. You know, I, it's not an obligatory thing. It really is a, is something that we're very, both my wife and I are very motivated by sharing burdens, I guess uh, you might say, or, or being a resource for people who carry unique burdens. And, and so, yeah, it's just, I think it's just part of the disposition that God's given us. You know, I'm just curious for you personally, when you experience something, when you experience a house on fire, so to speak, have you gotten to a place to where you walk into it? with less anxiety, with less fear, with less the world's crashing down? Yeah, I mean, after a certain number of repetitions, you know, when you're called into a crisis situation or when you're called into something that's going to, you know, be emotionally costly for everybody who's part of it, including you, um, after a certain number of, of repetitions or experiences, you know, walking in, dark or difficult places with other people or in your own dark and difficult places. You know, I think there's, God has this way of, of showing you through those experiences that, that yes, you'll get through them. And even if you don't, even if, even if this becomes a long-term challenge or affliction for you or for somebody else, I think as I've gotten older and I'm in my fifties now. So, you know, when I turned 50, I started thinking about mortality in ways that I never have before. And, you know, as a Christian, the mortality conversation is just a lot 
less scary and a lot more meaningful and motivating based on the promises that uh, are there uh, that Christ has given about the future, about eternal life, about new heaven and new earth, about all things being made new and no more death, mourning, crying, or pain. And so, so coming from a Christian perspective, you know, the older I get, the more believable it, it, it's becoming to me that the best days are always in the future and never in the past. And that's based on promise. And so if you take that out of the picture, man, I'm a, I'm a frightened man. Uh, but, but with, with those promises that God offers, uh, it not only enables me to face the future with hope, but, but also gives me resources, wonderful, believable resources to, to go into other people's hard situations and, speak into those in ways that I can. Yeah. The other thing I've learned over time as I've gotten older with this kind of stuff is that I, I'm not here to fix somebody else's situation. I'm here to show up. And, you know, a lot of times, you know, those who are in the helper position with somebody who's in need of help can put this undue pressure on themselves to fix it and to make it all better. Uh, when, when really what's needed is presence and, empathy and a willingness to, to be there. And, and that's, that's what, that's actually what somebody who's hurting needs the most. Uh, and so that's freeing when you can be in that headspace of, I'm not, I'm not here to fix this, or I'm not here to fix people. Uh, I'm here to show up and to love as best I can and offer whatever I can of my own limited, you know, frail resources, uh, to somebody else's pain. Yeah. I heard, uh, follow you on Twitter and, a couple of weeks ago, I saw you tweet something from Chip Dodd and, you know, they had a center here in Memphis that kind of became its own away from Sage Hill. But I was familiar with that language, but I'm curious as a pastor, was there a specific season or as a person, was there a specific season where you talk about understanding your own limitations and walking into it as a way to be there for support and understanding, but also not having the responsibility to fix it. Was there a season where you're almost maybe pushed beyond a breaking point or maybe not, not even anything that extreme, but to where fixing it was not an option? I think pastoring a large church has made it more real than, than it ever has been, right? So we've been, we planted a handful of churches from the ground up. And so we've, we've been in all kinds of, you know, church environments from very small where it's just our family and our dog and a couple of friends <laughs> to uh, thousands of people. And, you know, when I, when I started leading, when I found myself in a situation where I was leading larger churches uh, and the, you know, the expressions of need, which are, are oftentimes quite overwhelming, or even if they're not overwhelming, just the, the sheer cumulative nature of so many people having you know, burdens that need care and tending to, you realize pretty quickly that, that you are finite and you have to be uh, selective of the situations that you insert yourself into. And you've also got to be able to release certain, you know, people's situations into the hands of others. And, and so, so that's hard to do. It's hard to do, but it's necessary to do, you know, when some Somebody comes directly to me and says, you know, I really think you're the person. And, and I have to say to them, I'm, I'm actually during this season, 
probably going to be one of the worst people because I, I, I don't have the ability to show up for you to the degree that you need somebody to show up for you. But there's so-and-so over here who's walked this path themselves or they've walked it with others, you know, and, and they'll be a great person for you. And sometimes I think for me, the hard part of that is it's always going to feel disappointing when you tell somebody I can't do whatever. And, and that there's a guilt and a shame that goes with that. But the alternative is to burn yourself out and not do a good job caring for people. And, and, and so, so yeah, it's a, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of a dance. Yeah. Is it heartbreaking or frustrating when you reach your own limitations and you let things go and then they don't go well and then you have to live with those consequences? I guess <laughs> the alternative would be the all-American CEO, startup entrepreneur continues to grow and just rapidly grow the company. Or if you have a public CEO, shareholders, stock price, all those things. And then you know, you try to actually draw the line in the way that you're talking about, and then things kind of blow up and to kind of live with that and how to, it just seems, there seems like nuances to that. And I'm just curious if there's anything there. You mean when you're, when you're in a position of delegating something to somebody else and it doesn't go as you would hope? Yeah. I mean, you've got a very wealthy congregation. You've got a nice platform and obviously, I mean, just, I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm saying, that I feel like the burden that you've that seems like the things that you care about and the messages that you want told. And so it sounds like you have to move a lot of things around uh, through others. And I'm sure, you know, when people get more and more vested, uh, more and more emotions are on the line and people want power, people want access to uh, decision makers and all those things. So I'm just curious how you've learned to kind of play the long game with it, I guess. Was that more clarity on that? Yeah, I think so. Um, I'm not sure I've, I've mastered that one yet. Uh, you know, my, my love for being liked and approved of <laughs> sometimes will lead me to enter into situations that, uh, or to respond to requests or, or even demands that put me in a place of unhealth because of, you know, I don't have the capacity for it or because there's somebody that, that will actually be better for the situation and just being able to have the humility to admit that, which also, like I just said, involves disappointing the person by saying, I'm not your person. I can diagnose your marriage problem, but I can't fix it. Uh, like, like this person down here can. And so I'll meet with you once instead of for a year, you know, and I'll, I'll tell you what I think the issue is and who can help you. But I, I can assure you that I'm not that person. I think just discerning what your limits are in terms of capacity as well as gifting and having the humility as well as the courage to say, no, uh, I can't be your person here, but so-and-so can, uh, or such and such can. But when you're talking about, I don't know, you're, I guess you're talking about kind of the power people in churches and, you know, it was kind of embedded in your question. And yeah, that's where you've just got to really, you know, resolve yourself to uh, live and serve out of principle and not out of politics. And, you know, we have this saying in our home that, that my wife, you know, kind of brought into the culture of our family, especially when we were in New York, um, which was where we were before Nashville. So we're in New York City with 
a lot of, you know, kind of city gatekeepers of, <laughs> of the city of New York. And now I pastor a church that has a lot of gate gatekeepers, uh, you know, so-called gatekeepers in the city of Nashville and also nationally. And, you know, so our, our phrase, you know, like say, you know, we come home and one of our kids says, Hey, I saw the lead singer for X, you know, this band, uh, that I love, you know, sitting, you know, in the balcony today or, or, you know, saw this or, or, or whoever. And my wife, the first words out of my wife's mouth, and it's so funny because we've started to just sort of make it part of our family liturgy where she's, when she starts saying it, we, we all just join in. <laughs> Everybody puts their pants on one leg at a time. And, you know, I, I think that's a really important thing to remember that, you know, you take everybody's assets away and you take everybody's clothes off and they're all the same. Uh, everybody's the same. Uh, we're human beings that come from dust and we are headed toward dust and we need redemption. And uh, there's, a, there's a different way that that, that that need for redemption manifests itself in a 22-year-old with autism and Down syndrome than it does for a United States senator or, you know, the, the front man for Nashville's hottest band. But the need is there. Uh, we are fallen, flawed, frail. You know, we're, we're all overwhelmed. We're all under-encouraged. We're all insecure. And those things manifest in different ways you know, depending on context, but they're, they're, they're common. Uh, and so uh, it's just really important to remember that. And I think New York was actually really helpful because we got, we have a lot more, I guess, well-known people in our Nashville church setting than we did in our New York church setting. Uh, and, and, but I think that the New York experience was especially important because it helped us to get over the intimidation factor or the, the diva factor uh, of a well-known person being in the room or, you know, listening to what I'm saying from up front and whatever. And I, you know, I think we got to a point several years ago where I, I am just as dialed into and concerned about what, you know, a relatively, you know, lesser known uh, blue collar you know, professional and, you know, somebody with a very powerful public position, I, I, I don't see a difference in terms of those two people's importance or those two people's need. They both are equally important and they both are equally in need of what Jesus Christ has to offer. Um, but it's a, it took a lot of years for for my heart to kind of settle into that place to be unimpressed with celebrity and to uh, be very impressed with the image of God. Um, and, and the image of God is in everyone and celebrity is re reserved for a few, but celebrity also has unique burdens of its own, a unique loneliness to it, a unique uh, suspicion uh, about whether or not anybody really cares about you just for you. You know, th this is why up to this point, I've never asked a rich person for money. Uh, in the church, and and um, because I, I don't want to put a, a potential, I don't, I don't want to risk putting a barrier um, where somebody's going to think, uh, you know, I'm just 
here for what I can give or what I can offer. And so uh, I've actually turned down uh, some, some, some offers uh, for favors or for whatever. I don't post selfies with me and celebrities. Uh, you know, it's just like, I, 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 I and, and that's not to like condemn or make people feel bad who, you know, just took a picture with Bono. Probably if Bono would take a picture <laughs> with me, I would. Like there are two, there are a couple of exceptions I made. One is Roy Williams, the uh, former basketball coach to, University of North Carolina. If I can, if I can get a picture with him and then put it on the internet, I will. Yeah. Um, but that's not because he's well known. That's because I love the University of North Carolina basketball. But 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 I, I don't know. I, I think there. I think that pastors and leaders in general just need to be very careful not to treat people with partiality, because you know, really, the, the humble people. The way that Jesus do, does things, he reverses kind of the hierarchy of importance where, you know, a, a person who's important uh, in the eyes of the world uh, is to humble themselves when they walk into the, the, the church of God or the family of God or anything that, that Christ has a part of, their goal is to humble themselves as opposed to putting themselves forward. And it's, it's my job to help them with that, partly by my own example, hopefully, and partly by you know, privatizing my friendship with them rather than publicizing it. And on the flip side, a person who is maybe considered dismissible, overlooked, unimportant, not well networked in the eyes of the world, it's a pastor's job to work really hard to give that person celebrity status uh, in, in the family of God. Um, you know, along the lines of what James talks about. When a, when a rich person comes in, don't play favorites with them. But when a poor person comes in, give them the best seat and and treat give them the royal treatment. And so uh, I really resonate with that and want to do that well, want to do it better than I do. Um, I don't do it perfectly, but but I want to, I want to, because I think, I think the Lord is pleased with, with that. Yeah. When you first got to Nashville, were people surprised? when you kind of made it clear you weren't going to play that way? <laughs> oh, I, I got a lot of stories I could tell you up <laughs> that I won't tell you. Um, no, I, I have a few. I mean, one story was, it was pretty jarring where, you know, I, I, I think I was the first pastor ever to wear jeans when he preached at, at our church when I first got here. And I think that was alarming to some folks and it, you know, probably, you know, I probably could have waited, <laughs> you know, but it was my very first Sunday. And I actually got a secondhand threat uh, from one of the wealthiest people in the church that basically sent a message through a staff member that they're going to, they're going to leave the church. They're going to take their generous giving with them if I ever wear jeans again. And, and <laughs> I'm like, really? Um, and so, but, you know, when you're coming into a new situation and you've already got somebody making threats like that and, you know, telling you that they've got friends and, you know, they'll, they'll you know, take their friends with them too. Uh, you know, I had to make a decision very early on. Okay, so will I be bought or will I lead by principle? And, and, and it was probably a little bit too snarky, but I, I said to the staff member, you know, are these people willing to meet with me? And, and 
so we can have a conversation. And the staff member said, no, they, they, they tend to delegate this kind of conversation <laughs> and they just expect results. And I said, well, here's the result. Um, you know, you call them and tell them that if it's what makes them most comfortable, they can take their quarter of a million dollars a year to another church and call me if they need a ride. Uh, and that was probably, you know, me punching back too hard and ungraciously. Uh, but at the same time, I just don't respond well to bullies. And, you know, that was a scary thing, you know, to say for a major giver to the church who yeah. announced themselves as a major giver. But at the same time, it felt like the right thing because they did announce themselves as a major giver and used it as a basis to make a threat. And so I wore khakis the next Sunday and they weren't there. Uh, I've actually never met this couple. Uh, it's still to this day, I've never met them. I don't know what they look like. I know their names, but I don't know what they look like. But that was, that was early on. And I've had less dramatic experiences like that. Some I've handled well, some I've not handled well and had to apologize. Um, but, but yeah, I, I just don't think the church is a place where people should get away with pushing other people around at least not for long. So, so you're saying, so they left that 250,000 that went to, but didn't matter. I mean, obviously we it, it was that. interesting to me, the church, the church giving didn't go down after they left, uh, which was curious to me, but you know, maybe just new, new people came along with, with new generosity. Who knows? Hey everybody. We're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25 hour flight options that makes your experience hassle free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the US. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888 520 Jets. That's J E T S to travel on your own terms. You know, I read online when you talked in an interview that you had moved from, I guess, St. Louis to New York, you thought you were going to, or you were maybe going to be considered to succeed Tim Keller. And then obviously it sounds like they had some, you know, budgetary things that had to be worked through. You offered mm -hmm. to resign and you talked about how that crushed you. You didn't know where you were going next. And then obviously you come to Christ Press and there's a lot of really wonderful things going on, some of which we talked about, some I hope we get to here in a few minutes. But I'm just curious, was that experience, which it sounds sort of very heavy and maybe even traumatic to a certain degree, was that kind of a, a nail in the coffin, so to speak, on really kind of understanding this and believing this in your heart to kind of set you up for some of the things that we've just talked about? Yeah, I, yeah, I mean... I... Right, the promise is that God works all things together uh, for good, right? All things, right? The good and happy things and the hard, disappointing things. God puts them all together, maybe like a, a baker puts 
raw eggs and rotten bananas and flour and sugar all together. And it all works together for good, including the rotten banana to make fabulous banana bread, right? Our li- it's kind of a metaphor for our lives under God, where he takes the, the stuff that you just wish never happened uh, and the stuff that you're so glad did happen. And he puts it all together and makes good of it. And, and I, I do feel, believe with all my heart that, that God was completely uh, in the center of, if not orchestrating my exit from Redeemer, which was disappointing. I actually was named. I wasn't just being considered. I was named as a successor uh, to, to Tim. There were four of us. And, you know, what, what triggered, you know, the decision to call that down to three was, you know, budgetary and, and, you know, is offered, you know, the opportunity to, to wait, you know, and, and, and then, you know, plant a fourth redeemer two or three years after, after the fact. And, and, you know, we just, you know, we, we just felt like, you know, that, that was probably our signal that God was calling us out and, and so we took the call to Christ Prez, and and it was a kind of a rebuilding effort. It was a renewal effort of a of an established church of just over thirty years at the time uh, had been going with a lot of wonderful history and wonderful things they've done uh, in and around the city of Nashville and beyond. Uh, you know, Christ Prez was actually the top funding church uh, to send Tim and Kathy to New York uh, to start Redeemer. So. You know, it's kind of a full circle thing as well. We didn't realize that until after we got here and, you know, <laughs> but it's a fact. And, you know, since that time, a lot of the things that we dreamed could be possible uh, following in Tim's footsteps at New York have actually materialized in another place uh, here at Christ Pres and in Nashville and exponentially so. A, a lot more doors of ministry opportunity have opened uh, not in spite of the fact that we came to Nashville, but because of the fact that we came here. And so, so you know, I look back and hindsight's twenty twenty, and can see the good and gracious hand of God on us and, and also on the church and the community that we left. You know, they still have faithful ministry happening in four neighborhoods or, or no, five neighborhoods because they, they also started a, uh, they started um, a church, a, a Redeemer church in Harlem. So, so now they have faithful presence in five neighborhoods and um, I wasn't necessary, you know, to be part of that. And that's all good. That's God's plan and that's God's goodness and God's grace with the people that God chooses. And so, so yeah, wish Redeemer well, uh, you know, you know, love Tim Keller still, you know, a tribute to him at least 90% of, of who I am as a minister is, is, directly or indirectly tied to his influence in, in my life and regard him as a beloved friend. And, you know, a lot of just very fond of so many of our, our, our folks, our friends in, in New York city. Yeah. That struck me when I read that because I just thought it was really raw when I heard you talk about that. And especially when you think of Redeemer, New York, Tim Keller or Scott Sauls, whatever that might be, but then to hear kind of how you talk through that season and then to see that beauty and then talk about a lot of things that we've talked about in this episode. To me, I guess just reading, putting two and two together, it just seems like if I was, and that's why, I mean, if I was wrong, I was wrong, but it just seemed like for you, that was an experience that set you up for a lot of things or set up the work for a lot of things now. But uh, 
there's just a lot of us out there that have, you know, lived through moments like that. And it's really hard to, to see any good, you know, when you're going through it. And that's why I brought that up. Yeah, no doubt. I mean, I've learned so much about leading a large church, uh, about uh, leading change, uh, about leading a well-resourced church to leverage its resources and influence to serve its city. Uh, I mean, those years at Redeemer were incredibly formative for for the good that we've been able to be part of here. So no doubt it was it was like a master's, you know, degree with with a world-class practicum, you know, just just got to got to learn so much just by being part of, you know, something. So so yeah, no doubt about that. Yeah. I'm curious from a and I know we talked about it last time, but honestly a lot of this was covered through a lot of the things you just shared. I think when you got to Nashville, you said there might have been I don't know, 500 or so people visiting. Is that right? Yeah. When we first got here, there were about 500 people at the service the Sunday before we got here. Yeah. I think you said like 40% left. And then within a couple months, there was a thousand people there. Yeah. Yeah. The first six months were kind of wild. It was a little bit whiplashy where you'd, you'd get a daily announcement of somebody else who left the church. And, and, and then the next Sunday, there were a hundred people more there than there were the last week. And it just kept happening like that every week. And so we, we kind of settled in it. Yeah. I guess after the first year or so, yeah, well into the thousands uh, in terms of, of our congregation and a lot of new people uh, and still don't know where they all came from. Uh, You know, they talk about a lot of people moving to Nashville and it's a little bit of a church hopping town. So, you know, hopefully it wasn't mainly because of that, but yeah. Oh, you don't seem like a casino goer, a uh, gambler, but that would have been a good time to go the roulette wheel from what it sounds like. But it's no doubt just putting two and two together. I mean, this is fascinating to me. And I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to see if I could get you on just because to me, it's, it's fascinating kind of following the narrative and even the stories that you talked about with wearing jeans and 250,000. And I know that person, you know, they might probably regret that now, or maybe they do, you know, it doesn't matter. But the point is, it's like, coming in and it's interesting hearing your experience in New York and then coming in and just sticking to your principles or sticking to you, what you thought the gospel really said and living that out. And it's just neat to kind of see the beginnings of it, of that renewal. And then to also just see, even to tie it back to the very beginning, how you talk about how I asked you about the underdog or people with disabilities or the elderly, you know, races of of all people, all those things. And it seems, and then to hear you talk about what you learned at Redeemer, it seems exciting, even, you know, being in, in Memphis and being a part of a church like that now, but it's just, it's very energizing to kind of understand what you're saying from a human need standpoint, from an inclusion standpoint, but then also see from the operational standpoint, how it seems like the model, it just works incredibly well. And I guess to that point, I don't know what more is to really say here, but I just thought it was really interesting about how y'all, and I'd love to hear, can you share your thoughts on this, but it seems like y'all been very intentional about spinning out the campuses that y'all have. I guess you have three and that's, it seems like a counter model, but it seems that y'all are really just trying to empower these leaders that you have to run their own church and I don't know. I mean, was that something you had always had a heart for? And was that hard to do versus 
kind of keeping all of those people attending under your teaching each week? Well, one of the, one of the reasons why we went the direction that we did was what, what I learned from the Redeemer experience. And I think Redeemer would say this as well, that it's, a, it's just a supreme blessing to have somebody like Tim Keller as your, your leader. But when it's time for him to, you know, pass the baton and the system has grown so accustomed to depending on his world-class gifting, it's very hard to pivot from that if the community hasn't been prepared for it over the course of years. And so, so coming in here, when we, when we, when our elders decided that we would go the multi-site route and, and one of the reasons why we, we did that instead of just planting churches, we do plant independent churches. We contribute to three new church plants every year that are not part of our system. But, but part of why we also wanted a multi-site church where we had different locations of the same church in different parts of the city was that where our kind of mothership campus is located, which is where I am, it's, it's somewhat difficult to capture the diversity of our city. We're, we're the fifth most diverse city in the United States. Uh, but we're probably also one of the most segregated cities in the United States, and and, and so we felt like, and if we're going to be if we're going to be able to be effective at our our hope and aspiration and dream of being a, a a church that's diverse economically, ethnically, politically, you know, and and generationally, and so on, then we need to figure out a way to put our church uh, in 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 a well contextualized way, put our put our church and our vision in different neighborhoods to to fuel that diversity and and so so now we have four uh four locations including the original one and each has its own dedicated leadership and uh, there's a lot of autonomy and freedom on the local level while also sharing the same sort of thirty thousand foot you know vision in principle and we also preach out of the same text every week. Uh, and, and so that's one of the things that cohesively holds us together. And we'll have, you know, two or three, you know, gathered, you know, events or services throughout any given year to bring everybody together. Uh, but, but it's, it's been wonderful. Uh, and it's been hard too. It's, you know, diversity, there's the idea of diversity, which everybody loves. And then there's diversity, uh, which has got its challenges, uh, but so worthwhile as well. And we believe important to, Part of what God wants to do in the world. Are you friends with a guy named Brent Bishore? Have you heard his name? From uh, Columbia, from Columbia, Missouri? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've met, I wouldn't say we were friends and that we are in communication all the time, but I've met Brent. Yeah. Fantastic guy. Mm-hmm. I've actually done an interview with him up here, but he, he, he wrote a book called The Messy Middle. And obviously he's got a really interesting story and he has about a, a large fund and, you know, he'll buy operating companies. But I'm curious just from it seems like you have a, a rare skill set to really allow somebody to run with it and somebody to kind of have the runway to truly kind of run their church in that part of town. Was that hard to learn? Was that hard to accept? Is that still hard? Or what's that process been like where people feel the freedom to do that? So I don't know. I'm, I'm really compelled by high accountability, low control, you know, accountable to shared principles, to shared vision, but not going to micromanage how you lead that in your own local context, because 
we're, we're serving four very distinctive local contexts from one another. And, you know, ministry in North Nashville, where, where Micah Edmondson is, where it's 82% African-American and almost 100% blue state politically, is going to be very different than our Franklin Cool Springs congregation under Russ Ramsey, uh, which is a, a, a very Caucasian, you know, community, red state, politically. When I say community, I'm talking about the zip code, not so much the, the congregation itself. But but th- those two are, are they're bound to to do ministry differently uh, by virtue of the communities that they're serving, but they're able to do that under shared principles. And uh, I actually love it. I, I, I love just getting to watch it, and and I love I learn a lot from my you know my my other three pastoral colleagues who who lead their own congregations when they're so I learned a ton from them, the way they pastor, the way they think, the way they you know, turn a phrase. I, I, I just learn a lot from them. And so there's this sort of shared mutual sharpening dynamic that's made possible in this kind of system when you do this together and share an office and all that. And, you know, I used to be the guy that wanted a really big church. And, and then I, I over time, it just felt like, you know, I, I think I'd rather have a, a really healthy church that when, whether it's big or small or medium size, I just want it to be healthy and I, and I want to be a healthy leader of a healthy church culture and which is hard because the church is full of unhealthy people, including uh, us as leaders. We all have our own, you know, you know, unhealth in us. Right. And, and, and so it's, it's, it's a journey, but you know, one of the other reasons why we did the multi-site thing, and this is what I told our elders. I said, I said, whenever it is, this is when I, when I started writing books, which was never in the plan and it wasn't expected, but all of a sudden, I'm I'm not just this locally, you know, this local pastor, but I'm all of a sudden, like people in California know who I am and people <laughs> in, you know, Arkansas know who I am and they want me to speak at their conferences and all that. And, and, and so it's this new dynamic that I didn't really know what to do. Like, what do you do with that? It seems like, well, you should lean into it if God opens a door for you to speak to, you know, a few hundred pastors and, and, you know, encourage them in their ministry. Why would you say no to that? Or if somebody invites you to write a book on whatever, and, and it gets, you know, read by people and people benefit, why wouldn't you do that? If you have the time and and you're not taking away time or resources or energy from your primary calling to the local church, but it created this situation where all of the sudden, you know, because of my, I guess, the being known factor, it, it creates the potential to build our church around a personality or around a person, namely me, uh, which I don't want to do. Yeah. We don't promote my books. Like if I release a book, it, it doesn't get released uh, for our church. Like we, we just keep as low profile as, as we can about that unless the publisher allows us to give copies away for free or you know, for $3, you know, at, at printer's costs or whatever. Otherwise, we'll just kind of keep a low radar uh, on a book release here, which wildly frustrates publishers, but they they understand <laughs> and appreciate it. But maybe some, not all. <laughs> it, yeah, but I but I told uh, I, I told our elders, I said, I said, you know, let's, let's work together on setting up a system where when it, whenever it's time for me to hand the baton 
off that that it feels more like a mosquito bite than a than an earthquake when when I leave and that the church actually let's let's you know let's do what we can to set the church up for growth after I leave instead of decline um, like like let that let let's let those things be our principles and and where we need to get to in order for that to be a, a, a good possibility is for the system to over time depend less and less and less and less and less on me being its leader and you know having these thriving congregations in our system really helps with that and and in, in some ways each and every one of the pastors of the other congregations does at least one thing better than I do and and which becomes really appealing uh, to to folks and and less tempting for them to kind of gather around a personality and so I don't know it's, it's working so far it's still still feels like it's an experiment and yet you know we're kind of building a plane as we <laughs> as yeah. we fly it at the same time so yeah it's really neat well and it also sounds like from early on the tone was kind of set that you and y'all were playing the long game and from the start people could see that it sounds like maybe from a communication standpoint and you seem like a very vulnerable pastor but they kind of knew maybe had ideas of where it was headed. So it kind of probably gave people hope to kind of see where things were going to. So as maybe through delegation, some of this is my own intuition, but through delegation or through not as direct involvement and everything, people could kind of see maybe the end game. Is that true? Um, I think the, on the leadership level, uh, people are probably more in tuned to it than on the congregant level. Like, it's not, it's not like we're broadcasting the things that I just shared with you to everybody. It's just kind of what we talked about and hoped for and planned for as far as it depends on us behind the scenes, if that makes sense. So, yeah, yeah but I don't, I don't know how much it's part of people just, you know, they just want a group of people to worship with and be in community with. They're not thinking about long-term vision, uh, typically, nor, nor should they necessarily. I got you. Last question I got. You know, when I was preparing for my interview with you, I listened to something you said. You said when you first got to Christ President Nashville, you asked, I assume you didn't take it down yourself, but you asked them to take down the American flag because not that you don't believe in America or love America. I don't remember exactly what you said, but you said we don't have enough space to put up a flag of every country that's represented by our congregants. Did I get that right? Uh, not so much by our congregants. We could probably put a flag up for every congregant, you know, because we don't have all nations on earth represented in our church. But, you know, we we might have 15 or 20. Um, so you just meant all, all types of people. But no, it's, it's more in principle that, um, you know, it's the whole nationalism conversation, right? And I, I, I want to be honoring and respectful, right, for those who've made great sacrifices for what the American flag symbolizes, right? Especially, you know, military and public servants who've, you know, put themselves in harm's way in order to protect the freedoms that the flag represents. Uh, you know, so first I want to say that. And along with that, I, I, think a, I think an American flag in a church parking lot is, is one thing. An American flag in a church sanctuary is another. Um, you know, there's a symbolism to it, right? A sanctuary is a space that's reserved for, for symbols that point to the kingdom of God and to the person and work of Christ 
not to a nation, uh, you know, not to one single nation to the exclusion of others, right? And so, so our conversation, this was early on, this was 10 years ago or whatever, but, but it, it was really around the question, you know, if we're going to reflect the heart of Christ, right? This is a church that's always been very generous toward, you know, world global missions, domestic missions, and so on, and church planting and all the rest. And so, you know, as a church, we as Christ Press have recognized, you know, Christ's heart for the whole world. And so, wouldn't it make more sense uh, either to have all the flags of all the nations in the world in our sanctuary, which we could probably do it. It would just be a lot. Yeah. <laughs> and Or to respectfully find another location uh, for the American flag, because we are a church that's in America, et cetera, right? We're English speaking, which is which excludes people who only speak Chinese, right? Uh, on some level or who only speak Spanish, we're English speaking. So we've narrowed ourselves in that way. We are, you know, in America. And so let's find an honoring place, in, you know, somewhere on the church property where we can put up our country's flag out of respect and honor, you know, to the authorities that we are uh, accountable to as American citizens where God has placed us. But, but to not confuse the kingdom of God with, with any particular nation. How do you toe that line well? How do you toe that line well of being grateful? Obviously, United States has its flaws. There's a lot of things that have not gone well, and there's a lot of pain and hurt, and there's a lot of, mm-hmm. there's a lot of you know, oppression, and there's, there's things going on. So not being blind to that and acknowledging that, and then also celebrating being a beacon in a lot of ways. How do you toe that line well as a Christian in the United States where you are grateful for the sacrifice, but you also keep the main thing the main thing and don't kind of teeter on the side of nationalism? Yeah, I mean, first by not teetering on the side of nationalism, (laughs) by just not doing it. But I think that from a Christian perspective, Sam, it's supremely important to remember that there is an already and a not yet component to living as citizens of the kingdom of God who are also citizens of, of an earthly kingdom and or of an earthly republic or democracy or whatever you want to call it. But we are first and foremost and above all else and forever more citizens of the kingdom of Christ. And, and the kingdom of Christ is right now in this already in the sense that Christ has come, he lived, he died, he rose from the dead, he promised his coming kingdom, and the not yet, meaning that the church of Christ is still a hot mess. Uh, And, you know, stuff still goes on that would lead Jesus to legitimately say to Christians and pastors and leaders, get behind me, Satan. (laughs) But, but, but he, you know, when he said those words to Peter, it, it wasn't, him dismissing Peter. It wasn't him demoting Peter. It wasn't him saying, well, Peter, because you clearly don't understand the nature of my mission, you're out of here. I'm replacing you with somebody else, or I'm giving up on you. Instead, he stuck with and persevered with Peter. And I, I think that's that's got to be the posture toward the local church, toward fellow believers, you know, and and, and where there are things like you know, nationalism on the one hand or critical race theory on the other hand that, that are 
discernibly present among members of a local church, that's not a basis to write off the church. It is a basis to, to lean in to transparent, you know, iron sharpening iron community. Because we're, you know, the, the church is not meant to be without flaws any more than a nation could possibly be without flaws. You know, as Christians, our call is to, to try to have a redemptive impact on all of it, you know, and, and whatever our little spheres of influence and impact are, whether it's the church or whether it's the nation or the world that we're part of. I, I, I think we've got to be really careful to your very legitimate question, not to become cynical about how messed up our country is or about how messed up the state of, you know, evangelicalism is or the state of Christianity in America is. To not become cynical, to become concerned, yes, but to become cynical, no. To be prophetic, uh, you know, speaking truth of power, yes, in some instances. But to, you know, to blow it off, to give up on it, to attack it, no. So there's there's this middle ground somewhere that I think Christ has called us into. Gotcha. Thank you. I mean, that was not a hook question or anything. It's just no, it's a legitimate thought that I've had, and I know others have, like, how do you do this well? How do you be grateful where yeah. you are? How do you feel grateful for the yeah. justice and all the things that have been given? And then how also do you keep the main thing the main thing? Because it seems so easy to swing one side or the other. So I wanted to ask you about it. Man, thank you. We're coming up. We're right at hour and five. Uh, grateful for you in this afternoon. Can't wait to get this out. And just, man, hope you have a great rest of the week. And it's been a true pleasure interviewing you. You too, Sam. My pleasure. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I wanted to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, then go to drivenbypodcast.com and send me a message. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.